All right, I'm back again. Um, all right, uh, so today we get to hear from someone who is no stranger to the Redemption family. He's a familiar face, and uh, he is someone uh, who has done just a ton of work, obviously leading and uh, being a part of our Redemption family. Um, and uh, so his name is Tyler Johnson. Uh, Tyler is one of the pastors who helps to lead the executive team for all of Redemption. And so would you join me in just welcoming Tyler as he comes forward? All right, so how many of you guys saw that shot last night? If you guys are in here like, what in the world happened? ASU made a last second shot to beat not just anybody, but the University of Arizona last night. So proof positive that God exists. So we are in a series called The Servant King in the book of Isaiah. So if you want to open the apps on your phone or type into Google, or if you have a hard copy or Bible, Isaiah chapter 45 is where we'll be. Isaiah chapter 45. And then I know we just prayed, but I'm going to pray uh, as we open these scriptures, whether digitally or physically, uh, I'm going to pray. Father, we come right now and acknowledge that you uphold the universe by your powerful word. You have a sustaining word, and God, you have a piercing word. So God, the same word that upholds the universe, I pray that you'd speak in particular to our hearts and situations this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2005, a Pulitzer Prize winning book was published. The title is Team of Rivals. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this book before, but it's about Abraham Lincoln. Seven years later, in 2012, this movie came out. Uh, Phoenix's own Steven Spielberg uh, came and established this movie, Lincoln, that he both directed and produced. In both this movie and that book speak to the political genius of Abraham Lincoln. As I was looking at Isaiah chapter 45, I was brought immediately to this title, Team of Rivals, the political genius of Abraham Lincoln. And I thought to myself, much of Isaiah 45 shows the political genius of God. The political genius of God may sound like a weird term, almost like, did he just, political genius of God? Because many of us don't think about this word political in the right way. The word political just means polis, which many people would say in Greek means city, but it means the public commons. So when we think about a word called the police, what are the police but servants of the public good, public officers? So when we say the political genius of Abraham Lincoln, in many ways is a minor reflection of the depth of the political genius of God. What we mean by the political genius of God is his power to rule life. The reality of his governance of the public commons, our comings and goings, the reality of history, the political genius 
of God. Here's the first thing we need to understand when we look at the political genius of God is that God does the unlikely. I don't know how many of you guys have been walking with God very long, but when I say that, my sense is many of us could say, amen. God does the unlikely. God uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. The title of Team of Rivals alone shows that the political genius of Abraham Lincoln was in that he chose unlikely people. He chose his rivals, this group of men who he had defeated in the primaries. He then called them together as much as they had lashed out against each other, as much as they had spoken personally dagger type words towards one another, even in the reality that they viewed things, the situation of the country very differently. Part of the political genius of Abraham Lincoln was that he called together a team of what seemed to be rivals. He chose the unlikely. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse one, God does the very same thing. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now that's crazy. It may not sound crazy to us, but to use the word anointed, chosen one, very much the word anointed uh, brings up the connotation of a deliverer. That word in the Bible is like Messiah. In a very real way, this reflection of Messiah was attributed to somebody who wasn't a classic part of the people of God. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. He was in fact a Persian king. Now understand the context of Isaiah at this moment and what it felt like for the people of God. There's rumors that this new power from the East is coming into Babylon and gonna take over. There's all types of questions about economic security, about family security, about their way of life. They're deeply concerned. They're experiencing fear and anxiety. Just as Abraham Lincoln was leading in a time of crisis, this time for the Israelites was a time of crisis, a time of deep fear, a time of deep anxiety. People felt absolutely overwhelmed by a world that was too big for them. And what it felt like to these people is it was way too big for their leaders as well. Again, like Abraham Lincoln, much of the American populace at the time felt overwhelmed, incredible amounts of anxiety, incredible amounts of fear. What's going on in the world is too big for me and for our leaders in particular. Israel felt like the challenges were overwhelming, too big for them. And even what you see is they felt like this is too big for God. The God we've served right now, there must be other options. There must be other powers. Anxiety and fear has this way with us that we wanna place our trust somewhere, some solid place to put our feet and to establish ourselves. And along comes God and says, I've chosen one. Cyrus. Now, just to create a picture here, this would almost be like one from the East, 
that's coming in. So right now in our country, there's all this concern about China. You hear it all over the place, like balloons are flying in the air. The rise of the power of China. If right now God said, I have anointed one from the East, names a Chinese leader's name, and he's gonna lead us. He's the anointed one of God. Tell me, we would be like, God, you have no clue what you're doing. This does not bring any security to me at all, not in the least bit, but this is exactly what God says. This is what the Lord says to anoint his anointed. Who's the anointed? To Cyrus, whose right hand I will take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of the armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level mountains. I will break down gates of bronze, cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Folks, God does crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. God does unlikely things. He moves in unlikely ways. He chooses unlikely people. He does it in unlikely time frames. God chose Cyrus to make him his anointed. God sees it all. God knows it all. God's present in it all so he can use it all. Right? When we look at problems, you talk to city planners or you talk to developers and somebody on the scene has to think systemically is the word about all of the pieces and all of the parts. And when we don't do that, there's this reality we call the law of unintended consequences. People might have good motives, but the truth is they only see in part. They don't see in the whole. Part of the political genius of Abraham Lincoln is he knew that by bringing together a team of rivals, the unlikely people, is that he would see a clearer whole picture than he would with just people who thought like him. We see this in the world all the time. Leadership gurus, Patrick Lincioni is a big leadership guru. And he talks now in businesses that you should develop a test that's called a working genius so that you can put together a team of diverse viewpoints. Redemption Tempe in Redemption Arizona has been using a thing called five voices that in the end, you need a symphonic view of leadership. You need as many viewpoints as you can, as many vantage points different levels of experience and expertise. If you're gonna lead well, if you're gonna solve problems comprehensively, God understood the power of symphonic action. This is why we crave things in our political landscape. And we say things like, we just wish we had leaders again who would work across the what? Aisle. 
with people of different vantage points to serve the common good. Systemic solutions necessitate diverse and unlikely actors. And God does and chooses the unlikely. What does that mean for us? As we slow down and go, if God sees in whole what we only see in part, it means we need to slow down and pray this prayer. God, would you just give me the eyes to see a bit clearer? And God, give me the faith to trust that what I don't see, you do see. What I don't know, you know. Where I am not, you are. There's this um, famous passage in Isaiah 55, verse 8, where God tells us, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. So what is a verse like that supposed to do to us? that we would pray a prayer, God, faith is a gift that you give. Give me the gift of faith to believe what seems inconceivable. What from my vantage point is unbelievable. What is so hard for me to trust, God, let me trust. When we pray that prayer and can slow down long enough, that begins to allow us to move in areas that are uncomfortable. Trusting that God's upholding it all by his powerful word. The political genius of God is that he does the unlikely. Here's the second thing that God so clearly wants his people and us to understand. And it's a very simple phrase, but very hard to trust. God is in control. God is in control. Abraham Lincoln chooses this group of very unlikely people at a time of incredible unrest where people felt overwhelmed and at many points debilitated by fear and anxiety. And he showed his authority, Abraham Lincoln, by being able to choose the team. Who gets to choose the team? Who gets to choose their cabinet? But the one who is elected president. He showed his presidency in the establishment of the team. And then when the team came together, there was incredible amounts of disagreement. And when things got really hot, this book and this movie display that Abraham Lincoln listened but made a call. He listened, but established his authority because power exists in the position. Folks, God is God. And if God is God, God is in control. When we roll that all back and we go, but I feel overwhelmed. We too, like the Israelites of this time, live at a moment in history where we can be overwhelmed. Not just by foreign terrorism, though that is scary, balloons in the air. 
But domestic terrorism, the fear of inflation brings the fear of economic collapse. And we begin to think about, I never even established a 401k, or if I did, I don't know what it's going to look like. I know the mounting realities of my credit card bill. I feel the reality of responsibility. The truth and honesty of we feel massively overwhelmed so often. What do we do then? It's a simple reminder. God is in control. God chose Cyrus. And in God choosing Cyrus, verses one through five show that what Cyrus does, what happens under Cyrus's leadership is actually God. It's actually God the one who, is the one who's doing these things. He chooses the unlikely, and yet the Bible's very clear. He appoints kings, and he dethrones kings. He appoints bosses, and he fires bosses. God sovereignly appoints the boundaries and times in which we live so that people might seek and come to a recognition of God, that there is a God, and he is in control, and there is no other. We read in our declaration today from the book of Romans, this passage that gets referred to a lot in Christian circles. For God works all things to, together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. There's another passage in the book of Ephesians that said, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Here's the theological statement that people put to that. It's called the sovereignty of God. The word sovereignty, if you look it up in a dictionary, comes down to who is supreme and who has ultimate power. Who is supreme and who has ultimate power? Because what happens in our lives, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that when we feel overwhelmed, when we experience debilitating anxiety and incredible amounts of fear, the uncertainty of our present and of our future, we look for a place to put our feet. Let me establish a side hustle. Let me look for a different leader. Let me bow up my chest and say, I got this. Let me read to myself seven affirmations of my power. The problem with that is you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, I'm the power? <laughs> and all of a sudden, your, your knees are getting weak. I'm the one who's supposed to just understand what's going on in front of me? I have a hard time brushing my own teeth in the morning. And I'm declaring 10 affirmations. And this reality of like, I don't have power. Or you sit in the situations with your family and you're like, I can't even fix it. And my kids too. I'm not the fixer. 
You know this. You're not the fixer. We're not the fixers. We're not the answer. So God comes in in verse six and seven. He says, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse seven, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now let's be frank for a minute. All of those things? You form the light? Okay. You create darkness? You bring prosperity and you create disaster. That feels weird. Now we know from the whole of scripture, if you read the whole Bible, the truth is, is that God is not the author of evil. God is not the maker of sin. He is not the one who enters death into the world, but he is sovereign over suffering. He is sovereign, supreme authority over death. He is the one who moves reality, whether it be for good or ill. Read the whole reality of the scriptures. This is the final recognition of Job. When he goes through all of this tremendous, what feels at many times like unjust suffering, in the end, here's what he says. Before God, my ears had only heard of you. Now, my eyes see you. God is God. The political genius of God is that he has the power. He has the knowledge. He has the ability to control it all. Verse 18, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, who's the he? God. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay, now the questions of us as real human beings don't come up in the simple declarations, God, are you the creator? We all can, I can recognize God, you're the creator. I'm the sustainer. Okay, God, you're the sustainer. But now... This is my life. These are the realities of my feelings. This is my family, God. That's my bank account. Why did you allow that to happen to me, God? Why to her so young? Are you sick, God? Are you foolish? Remember, God doesn't choose, choose the unlikely people. He works through unlikely 
at many times things that feel horrific to us. But God is God. He knows what you don't know. He sees what we don't see. Now, these truths, when you read these verses that we just read in 6 and 7 and verse 18, it can be incredibly disruptive. It can feel to many of us, and maybe some of you who are sitting in this room that go, I don't even know if I'd call myself a Christian, but the verses you just read are why I don't want to be a Christian. If God's like that, if God has it within his power to stop these horrific atrocities and he doesn't, I don't know if I want to believe in that God. Now, to all of us, Christian or non-Christian that feel like that, I just want to submit this to you. If at that moment we establish that's so disruptive, I don't even know if I can believe in a God like that. We still have the atrocities on our hand. We still have the overwhelming nature of life. We still have our fears. We still have our anxieties. We still have our anger, do we not? Who's taken that? You? Me? Name the strongest, wisest person you have. Are, are they the ones that are going to fix this? Did Abraham Lincoln take care of all problems for all of history? And then if that's true, why is it that so many of us, even when we begin to push God aside, still get mad at life for those hardships? Still get angry at life for those atrocities? Still get frustrated with reality because of our fears and anxieties? Who are we mad at? Life. What does that mean? You're mad at life? You're frustrated with reality? Think about this. If we have a God that's big enough to be mad at and frustrated, because if you're mad and frustrated, you're frustrated at life or God because you go, you could have actually changed this. You could have actually done something, God. If you have a God that's big enough to be mad at, do we not have a God that's big enough to work in ways we don't comprehend? Do we have a God that's big enough to choose Persian kings for the liberation of his people? This can be disruptive or it can be astonishingly liberating. Who are you, God? There's these verses here that are either really disruptive or liberating. Verse 9, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? 
it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. Now, if that's what's said to you by an earthly father who sees in part, that's called narcissism. If God says that, it's called truth. And the truth sets us free. Now, here's the other power. If the one saying that is minuscule in his ability and is a narcissist, that's scary and will lead to destruction. If the one who's saying that is love, like 1 John 4 says, God is love. If the one who says that is love, here's what that means. Look at me for a minute. Love's got you. Love's got this. Love's got us. If that power, the one who made it all, who established light and darkness, who in him all things hold together, if he is love, love's got you. Love's got us. Love's got this. So when we sit in these moments of incredible, overwhelming realities, debilitating fear and incredible anxiety, we can say, God, you're God. We can right then take a deep breath. God, you've got this. Love's got me. I have this practice that I'll sit down because I experience um, anxiety uh, is, is real. And I'm now a middle-aged man. Uh, and so with middle-aged man, there's these things called midlife crises. And I'm convinced in midlife crises, it's basically this reality of like, there is so much responsibility on me and I can't carry this. And there's so many problems that are in front of me, I can't fix this. And it's like you want to scream into the air. I'm not the answer. Stop calling me. Stop texting me. Stop sending me bills. <laughs> so I've had this practice brought to me and I'll do it a lot where I'll sit down and I'll put my hand on my chest and I'll just take four deep breaths in and out. But as I take the first breath in, I say, I am not the savior. And I'll hold my breath. I am not the answer. I am not the savior. I am not the answer. And I'll typically do that four times. Then I'll stop and kind of look around. Feel, wow, kind of feels good. And then I'll direct my attention. God, you are the answer. You are the savior. You are the savior. You are the answer. The reminder that God is God certainly can be disruptive, but far bigger than that, that truth is the truth that sets us free. It's liberation. It's emancipation. Here's the last reality of God's political genius. God is the savior. God is the answer. God alone 
is the Lord. The story of Abraham Lincoln uh, throughout this time is his own wrestling match with both the importance of emancipation of the slaves and his growing conviction of the necessity of it. Now, this is a hotly debated reality of was he actually after emancipation? But he begins to grow it and there begins to be this big conflict on when he should do the emancipation proclamation before victory or after victory. But the truth was, is that he's known up to today as the great emancipator. Now he's just a mere reflection of God who at his core is the greatest emancipator. He is the savior. Now, salvation in the Bible, and this is really important for us to know, salvation in the Bible is holistic and comprehensive. If you've been around a church that teaches the Bible for very long, salvation is spoken of, and rightfully so, is our salvation from sin. Paul says this, God who came to save sinners of whom Paul said, I am the chief, the worst. God does save from sin, but sin impacts everything. Like that Christmas hymn, as far as the curse is found. So God's salvific reality saves us from sin. Ultimately, us as sinners are saved by God, but he saves us in our real lives from the consequences of sin from the weightiness of sin, from the uncertainty that sin creates in our world. Salvation in the Bible is holistic. And salvation, folks, if you read this whole chapter in the whole Bible, is the primary task of God. This is what he's doing constantly. When you read this passage, he says, I have called Cyrus for what reason? To liberate, emancipate my people. When his people felt because of being enslaved, because of being under oppression, because of the weight, overwhelmed, debilitated by fear and anxiety, God comes on the scene and chooses an unlikely king to move through him for emancipation. Why is that? Why, when you read the Bible, is God always working towards salvation? This is one of the best truths I've ever recognized from the Bible in my life because God in his very nature is a savior. The Lord, the one who speaks creation to existence, upholds it by the word of his power at his very core of who he is, is an emancipator. Which is why in the midst of this, his strategy in picking the unlikely, his establishment of his lordship that God is in control is also why he says, I am a savior. In fact, verse eight even says he's the creator of salvation. And then he ends in verse 22 with this final declaration to this people And listen to me, and to you, and to me, and to us. And he says, turn to me and be saved. 
all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. We are not the savior. We are not the answer. In the Lord alone is our deliverance and strength. So when Jesus sits and looks and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are overwhelmed and debilitated by fear and anxiety, come to me and I'll give you rest. That was because Jesus is the savior. That was because Jesus is the answer. Jesus, who is the Lord and in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. So this morning, if you're weak, what do you do in your weakness? Well, he says, turn to me and be saved. In all of the reality, the stories that overwhelm you right now, whether you're, they're your kids or your parents, your job or your bank account, turn to Jesus, who is deliverance and strength, that you might be saved. All the things right now that you feel like, you know what I need to be saved from? Myself, my habits, my practices. Turn to Jesus and be saved. All the ends of the earth. That's everybody who's in here and beyond. The message we have to offer to the world is turn to Jesus and be saved. Because in him are deliverance and strength. This can become so commonplace that you haven't done it. But this moment where we land at the table, Christ's body and blood given for us is a moment of God knocking at the door saying, come feast on me. That is the moment of turning. God, you are deliverance and strength. You are the savior. You are the answer. If you're in this room and you were one of those people that go, listen, I don't even, I came in here, I don't even know why I believe this, but something is going on inside of me. I just wanna say this really confidently and calmly, that's God. God's calling you to hear these words, come to me and be saved. So as we together come, let us see in these lines that walk to the table, that we are declaring Jesus saves. That's what these lines declare. And then personally to you, turn to him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's power and it's emancipation. God, meet us now in these elements. God, meet us in the words that we sing. Show us your love and saving power. In Christ's name, amen.